You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 323, by Rudolf Steiner, 18 Lectures, entitled Interdisciplinary Astronomy, translated by Frederick Amrine. This is Lecture 7, given on January 7, 1921. You will have seen how we're trying in these lectures to prepare the ground for an adequate worldview. As I've pointed out again and again, the astronomical phenomena themselves impose upon us the necessity of advancing from the merely quantitative to the qualitative aspect. Under the influence of the sciences, there is an overarching tendency in modern scholarship to neglect the qualitative side and to translate what is really qualitative into quantitative terms, or at least into formalisms. One might even say into rigid forms, for when we study things from a formal aspect, we tend to pass quite involuntarily into rigid forms, even if we want to keep them mobile. But the question for us is whether an adequate understanding of the phenomena of the universe is possible at all in terms of rigid formal concepts. We cannot build an astronomical worldview until this question has been answered. This tending toward the quantitative, abstracting from the qualitative aspect, has led to a downright addiction to abstraction that is starting to become extraordinarily detrimental in certain scientific disciplines because it leads away from reality. People will calculate, for instance, under what conditions, if sound waves are emitted one after another from two different sources, the sound omitted later will be heard before the other. All that's necessary is the trifling detail that we ourselves would be moving with a velocity greater than the speed of sound. But when we think in keeping with real life, instead of letting our thoughts and concepts run away from reality, we'll stop forming such concepts when we find them incompatible with the conditions determining our situation within the environment. It's inevitable. It makes no sense whatsoever to formulate concepts for situations in which we never can find ourselves. To be a spiritual scientist, we have to educate ourselves to look at things in this way. Spiritual scientists will always want their concepts to be united with reality. They don't want to form concepts remote from reality, going off on a tangent, or at most they'll do so only slightly. They bring them back to reality again and again, and all the harm done by the wrong kinds of hypotheses in modern science is due to deficient feeling for the ways in which we're bound up with reality. A world free of hypotheses, for which we strive and ought to strive, would be achieved far more quickly if we could only permeate ourselves with this sense of reality. 
but of course that presupposes a real desire to experience what is given phenomenally. And that's not what people actually do today. If the phenomena were observed without prejudice, a paradigm would arise that's fundamentally different from the one promulgated by scientists who deduce far-fetched conclusions and consequences to no real purpose, piling one unreality upon another, leading only to hypothetical thought structures. Starting from this and from what was given yesterday, again I'll have to introduce certain concepts which may seem at first to be unconnected with our subject, but in due course you'll see that they're also needed for the building of the new paradigm that I'm trying to develop here. I need to take up again what was said yesterday in connection with the Ice Ages and with the evolution of the Earth as a whole. Now, let's approach it from a completely different direction. The life of the mind is made up on the one hand of the sensory impressions we receive and on the other the formations if I may use that term, that arise when we elaborate the sensory impressions inwardly. Hence the customary distinction within our inner life between sensory perceptions and the actual inner life of ideation. The only way we can approach the reality of this domain is to begin by forming these two concepts, that of the bare percept and that of the percept that has been elaborated inwardly to become ideation. It's important to see without prejudice what the real difference is between our cognitional life insofar as it's permeated with actual sensory perceptions on the one hand and consists of mere representations on the other. Our observation needs to transcend the usual spatial juxtaposition. We need to recognize the subtle differences of quality and intensity that they present to us. If we compare the realm of our sensory perceptions to the extent that we experience them consciously with our dream life, it goes without saying that we shall observe an essential qualitative difference between the two. This difference must be noted as well but it's not the same as regards our inner life of ideation. I'm referring now not to its content, but rather to its inner quality. The content of our thought life obscures this difference because it's permeated with reminiscences of sensory perceptions. Leaving aside the actual content and looking only at its inner quality and character, the whole way in which we experience it, There's no real qualitative difference between our inner life of ideation as such and our dream life. Think of our waking life by day, or all that's present in the field of our consciousness when we open our senses to the outer world and are thereby active in our inner life, forming mental pictures and ideas. In all this forming of mental pictures, we have precisely the same kind of inner activity as in our dream life. The only thing that's added to it is the content determined by sensory perception. This also helps us realize that our life of ideation is a more inward process than sensory perception. 
Even the structure of our sensory organs, the way they are built into the body, shows it. The processes in which we live by virtue of these organs are much more detached from other somatic processes than is otherwise the case. See figure 1. As a pure matter of fact, it would be far more accurate to describe the life of our senses as a gulf-like penetration of the outer world into our body than as something primarily contained within the body. It's much more consonant with the facts to say that through the eye, EYE, for instance, we experience a gulf-like entry of the outer world. This detachment of the sensory organs enables us to share in the sphere of the outer world. Our most characteristic sensory organs are precisely the part of us that's least closely bound to the inner structure of the body. On the other hand, what manifests as our inner life of ideation is completely bound to that inner structure. Hence the process of ideation within our cognitional life is different from the process of sensory perception as such. Please, remember always that I am thinking of these processes such as they are at the present stage in human evolution. Now recall again what I told you yesterday about the evolution of mental life from one ice age to another. Looking back in time, you'll observe that the whole confluence of sensory perceptions and the inner life of ideation, the forming of mental pictures, has undergone a change since the last ice age. And if you perceive the very essence of that metamorphosis in our cognitional life that I was describing yesterday, then you'll realize that in the times immediately after the decline of the ice age, human knowledge took its start from qualities that were experienced very differently from the ways in which those qualities are experienced today. To describe it more specifically and concretely, while our own cognitional life has become more permeated and determined by the senses and all that we receive from them, what we don't receive from the senses, what we received long, long ago through a symbiosis with the outer world that was structured in an altogether different way, has faded out and vanished evermore as time went on. However, this other quality, this symbiosis with the world is shared by our ideas and mental pictures. They're shadowy, like our dreams. As in our dreams, in our ideas and mental pictures, we have a feeling of union with the environment. In our life of ideation, we don't really differentiate between ourselves and the world that surrounds us. We're completely given over to it. It's only in the act of sensory perception that we separate ourselves from the surrounding world. Now, this is just how the structure of human consciousness has evolved since the last Ice Age. Self-consciousness was enkindled. Self-consciousness, the feeling that we have an ego, flared up and grew continually. So then, where do we arrive when we go back in the evolution of consciousness 
beyond the last ice age. We're not framing hypotheses. We're observing what really happened. We come to a human consciousness more dreamlike than ours today, more akin to our present experience of ideation than to our experience of actual sensory perception. Ideation, however, is more closely bound to somatic processes than is sensory experience. Therefore, what lives and works within ideation will find expression within somatic processes rather than independently of them. Remembering what was said in the last few lectures, we are led, then, from the diurnal to the annual influences of the surrounding world. As I showed, the diurnal influences are those which tend to form our conscious picture of the world, whereas the annual influences affect our somatic nature as such. Hence, if we trace what has been going on in our inner life as we go back in time, we're led from the conscious life of the soul deeper and deeper into the organic life of the body. In other words, before the last ice age, the course of the year and the seasons had a far greater influence on humanity than after. Once again, human nature itself is a reagent that we can use to judge the cosmic influences that surround the earth. Until we realize this, we can't begin to form true ideas of the relations, including even those of movement, between the earth and the surrounding heavenly bodies. If we wish to study the phenomena of movement in the heavens, we have to begin with the most sensitive instrument, as it were, human nature itself. And to that end, we need to know human nature. We have to be able to discern what belongs to the one realm, namely the diurnal influences, and to the other, the annual influences. Those who have made a more intensive study of anthroposophical science may be reminded here of things I have often described from spiritual perception, the condition of life in old Atlantis, that is, before the last ice age. There I was describing from another aspect, namely from direct spiritual sight, the very same things that we're approaching purely intellectually here, taking our start from the facts of the external world. In that way, we're led back to a kind of mutual influence between the earth and its celestial environment that gave humanity an inner life of ideation and that was later transmuted in such a way as to give rise to the life of sensory perception in its present form. Parenthesis, the life of the senses as such is, of course, a much wider concept. Here I am referring only to the form it takes at present. Close parenthesis. But we have to make an even subtler distinction. It's true that self-consciousness or ego-consciousness, such as we have it in our ordinary life today, is kindled in us only in the moment of awakening. Self-consciousness inserts itself the moment we awaken. It's our relationship to the outer world, the relationship we establish through the use of our senses, to which we owe our self-consciousness. But if we analyze in accordance with the facts what it is that inserts itself into us in this way, we feel compelled to confess that if, 
our inner life of ideation retained only its dreamlike quality, and if only the life of the senses entered into it, something would still be lacking in our ideation. Our concepts would remain like fantasies, not the same as fantasies, but like them. We wouldn't get the sharply outlined concepts that we need for life in the external world. Hence, together with the life of the senses, something flows into us simultaneously from the outer world that gives sharp outlines and contours to the mental pictures of our everyday consciousness. That's something which the outer world also gives us. Otherwise, the mere interplay of sensory effects with the ideational effects would bring about in us a life of fantasy or fancy and nothing more. We never would achieve the sharp precision of everyday waking consciousness. Now let's simply observe the different phenomena in a Gertian way, or, as it has meanwhile been expressed more abstractly, in Kirchhoff's way. Before doing so, I have to make another incidental remark, however. Contemporary scientists speak of a, quote, physiology of the senses, close quote, and even try to build upon that foundation all sorts of different, quote, psychologies of the senses, close quote. But if you see these things as they are, you'll find little that's real under such rubrics. Our senses are so radically different from each other that a unified physiology of the senses can be at best a highly abstract construct. All that emerges at the end of the day is a rather scanty and even so highly questionable physiology and psychology of the sense of touch, which is transferred by analogy to the other senses. If you look for what's real, you'll need to come up with a distinct physiology and a distinct psychology for each and every one of the senses. Provided that we keep these reservations in mind, we can now proceed. Mindful of all the necessary qualifications, we can then say the following. Look at the human eye, E-Y-E. I don't have time to rehearse the elementary facts which you can find in any scientific textbook. Consider the human eye. It's one of the organs that provide us with impressions of the outer world, sensory impressions and also what gives them form and contour. These impressions received through the eye are, once again, connected with all the mental pictures that we then work up from them in our inner life. Now, let's make a clear distinction between what underlies the sharp configuration that raises our ideas up to become more than merely fanciful images, giving them clear and precise outline, let's distinguish that from what's at work when we don't find this sharp configuration, so that we'd be dwelling within a life of fantasy. Even through what we experience with the help of our sensory organs and what our inner faculty of ideation makes of it, we would still be floating in a realm of fantasies. It's through the outer world that all this imagery receives clear outline, finished contours. It's through something from the outer world, which somehow enters into a reciprocal relationship with our eye, E-Y-E. And now look around. Transfer what we've just determined regarding the human eye to the human constitution as a whole. Look for it in an entirely empirical way in the whole of our human nature. Where do we find 
albeit in a metamorphosed form, something that makes a similar impression. We find it in the process of fertilization. The reciprocal relationship of the human organism as a whole, the female human body, to the environment is in a metamorphosed form the same as the relationship of the I to the environment. To anyone who approaches these things with an open mind, it will be entirely clear. Female life is the cosmic counterpart of fantasy, transposed into material terms, whereas male life is that which forms the contours and sharp outlines. It's the male principle that transforms the undetermined life of fancy into a life of determined form and outline. Viewed in the way we've described in today's lecture, the process of sight is none other than a direct metamorphosis of the process of fertilization, and vice versa. We can't reach workable ideas about the universe without entering into such matters. I'm sorry that I can only just begin to allude to them, but after all, these lectures are meant as a stimulus to further work. That's what I take to be the purpose of these lectures. As an outcome, every one of you should be able to go on working in one or other of the directions I have indicated. All I want is to point in certain directions. They can be followed up in diverse ways. Today there are indeed countless avenues opening up that allow us to extend scientific methods of research in new directions. Only we need to lay more stress on the qualitative aspects even in those domains where we have grown accustomed to a merely quantitative treatment. What do we do when we treat things quantitatively? Mathematics is the best example. Kinematics is another. We ourselves first develop such a science, and we then seek to find its truths in the external empirical reality. But to comprehend the fullness of empirical reality, we need more than this. We need a richer array of concepts than is offered by conventional mathematics and kinematics. If we approach the world with the premises of kinematics and mathematics, then of course we'll find a universe or developmental mechanisms, as the case may be, that are structured phoronomically and mathematically. But expanding our paradigm beyond conventional mathematics and kinematics will reveal hitherto unapprehended phenomena. Even in experimental research, this will be the case. The clear differentiation between the life of the senses and the life of the human organism as a whole hadn't taken place yet in the time preceding the last ice age. Humans still enjoyed a more synthetic, a more unified, organic life. Since the last ice age, Humanity's organic life has undergone, as one might say, a very real analysis, in quotes. This, too, is an indication that the relationship of the earth to the sun was different before the last ice age from the relationship that developed later. These are the kind of premises with which we have to begin, and then we have to gradually develop models of the universe in its relation to the earth and to human nature that are imaginative and concrete. Moreover, this draws our attention to another fundamental question. 
to what extent is, in quotes, Euclidean space, something we can use in constructing our worldview. The name doesn't matter, of course. What I mean is the space that's characterized by three fixed directions at right angles to each other. Surely this can stand as a rough and ready definition of Euclidean space. I might also call it Kantian space, for Kant's arguments are based on this assumption that one has to do with three fixed dimensions, perpendicular to each other, and mutually impenetrable. Now, as regards this Euclidean, or, if you will, Kantian space, we have to put the pressing question, does it correspond to a reality, or is it only a thought construct, an abstraction? After all, it might well be that there actually is no such thing as this rigid space. Now, I ask you to consider that when we do analytical geometry, we start with the assumption that the x, y, and z axes absolutely can be construed in this immobile way. We assume that this inherent fixity of the x, y, and z axes we have posited corresponds to something real in the world. What if there were nothing, after all, in the realms of reality to justify our setting up the usual three coordinate axes of analytical geometry in this fixed way? Then the whole of our Euclidean mathematics would be, at most, a kind of approximation to reality that we ourselves construct in our inner life, as a convenient means of comprehending this reality. But it couldn't claim to tell us anything about reality when applied to the real world. The question now is, are there any indications pointing in this direction? suggesting, in effect, that this fixity of Euclidean space cannot, after all, be maintained. I know that what I'm getting at here will be very difficult for many people today, simply because their thinking doesn't conform to reality. They think one can be guided by leading strings of concepts, deducing one thing logically from another, going on and on, drawing logical and mathematical conclusions without limit. In contrast to these contemporary scientific inclinations, we need to learn how to think in a way that's derived from reality. We can't allow ourselves to create just any old model without at least looking to see whether or not it accords with reality. We should investigate whether we can find a more qualitative determination of space when we engage concrete experiences. I am aware that the ideas I am about to set forth will meet with great resistance, yet there is no way around drawing attention to such things. The theory of evolution has entered ever more into the different fields of science. Scientists have even begun applying it to astronomy. That phase is perhaps over now, but it was the case a little while ago. They began to speak of a kind of natural selection. Then, as the radical Darwinians would do for living organisms, so they began to attribute the genesis of heavenly bodies to a kind of natural selection, as though the eventual structure of our solar system had arisen by selection from among all the bodies that had first been separated out. Even this theory was once put forward. 
people are just in the habit of trying to apply what they have learned in one particular discipline to the whole of existence whenever they can. So, too, it came about that human beings were simply placed at the latter end of the evolutionary sequence of the animal kingdom. Human morphology, physiology, and so forth were investigated in that light. But the question is whether that kind of investigation can do justice to the whole of the human constitution. For to begin with, it omits what's most striking and essential, even from a purely empirical point of view. We watch the evolutionists of Hackle's school simply counting how many bones, muscles, and so on humans and the higher animals respectively possess. Counting in that way, they had no choice but to place humans at the end of the sequence of animal evolution. But it's quite another matter when we envisage what's evident for all eyes to see, namely that the axis of the human spine is vertical, while that of the animal is mainly horizontal. The description is only approximate, but this characteristic is nevertheless distinctively human. Examined empirically, deviations from this characteristic in certain animals will prove to be highly significant. Where the direction of the spine is turned toward the vertical, corresponding changes are called forth in the animal as a whole. But the essential thing is to observe this very characteristic difference between humans and animals. The axis of the human spine follows the vertical direction of the radius of the earth, whereas the animal spine is parallel to the earth's surface. Here you have purely spatial phenomena with a quite evident inner differentiation, inasmuch as they apply to the whole gestalt and formation of animals and humans. Taking our start from the realities of the world, we cannot treat the horizontal in the same way as the vertical. Enter into the reality of space, see what's happening in space, such as it really is, and you can't possibly regard the horizontal as though it were equivalent or interchangeable with the vertical dimension. Now all this has a further consequence. Let's compare the anatomies of animals and humans. Let's start with animals. Please flesh out properly with your mind's eye the sketch I'm about to give you. Observe and contemplate carefully the skeleton of any mammal. The conventional thinking in this realm isn't nearly concrete enough. It doesn't enter thoroughly enough into the details. Consider then the skeleton of an animal. I won't go any further than the skeleton, but what I'll say about the skeleton is true to an even higher degree of the other parts in the human and animal body. Look at the obvious differentiation, comparing the skull with the opposite pole of the animal. If you do this with morphological insight, you'll perceive characteristic harmonies or agreements and also characteristic differences. Here's a line of research that ought to be followed up in far greater detail. Here's something to be seen and recognized which will lead far more deeply into reality than scientists today are inclined to go. It lies in the very nature of these lectures that I can only hint at such things, leaving out many intermediate steps. I have to appeal to your own intuition, 
trusting you to think it out and fill in what's missing between one lecture and the next. Then you'll see how all these things are connected. If I did otherwise in these lectures, we'd never reach our goal. Diagrammatically now, see figure 2, let this be the animal form. If you put the question, quote, what is the cause of the characteristic difference between the front and the back, close quote, after going into an untold number of intermediate steps in the investigation, you'll reach a very remarkable conclusion. Namely, you'll connect the differentiation of the front end with the influences of the sun. See figure 3. Here is the earth, figure 3 on the right. You have an animal on the side of the earth exposed to the sun. Now, take the side of the earth that's turned away from the sun. In one way or another it will come about that the animal is on this other side, figure 3 far right. Here too, the sun's rays will be influencing the animal, but the earth is now between. In the one case, the rays of the sun are working on the animal directly. In the other case, indirectly. Inasmuch as the earth is between, and the sun's rays first have to pass through the earth. Expose the animal gestalt to the direct influence of the sun, and you get the head. Expose the animal to those rays of the sun, which have first gone through the earth, and you get the opposite pole to the head. You have to study the skull so as to recognize in it the direct outcome of the influences of the sun. You have to study the forms, the whole morphology of the opposite pole so as to recognize the working of the sun's rays before which the earth is interposed, the indirect rays of the sun. Thus the morphology of the animal itself draws our attention to a certain mutual interaction between earth and sun. For a true knowledge of the mutual interactions of earth and sun, we have to create the requisite conditions, not by way of the mere visual appearance, even if the eye is equipped with a telescope, but by perceiving how the whole animal form comes into being. Now, consider how the axis of the human spine is rotated 90 degrees relative to that of the animal. All the effects we have been describing will undergo further modification where the human constitution is concerned. Therefore, the influences of the sun will be essentially something entirely different in humans compared to animals. The way it works in humans will be like a resultant, see figure 4. That is to say, if we represent this line, whether it represents the direct or the indirect influence of the sun, by this length, we will have to say, here is a vertical line. This will also be acting. See figure 4. And we'll get what's active within us as human beings only by forming the resultant of the two. Readers aside, imagine a parallelogram of forces, a horizontal line and a vertical line from an axis. You'll get a resultant, which is that diagonal that reaches from the origin to that uh, vector, as it's called, end of readers aside. Suppose, in other words, that we were led to attribute the formation of the animal quite fundamentally to, say, a rotation of the sun about the earth, or a rotation of the earth about its own axis. Then, if this movement underlies animal formation, 
will inevitably be led to attribute to the earth or to the sun yet another movement, related to the forming of the human constitution itself, a movement which, for its ultimate effect, unites the first movement, underlying the foundation of the animal, to form a resultant. That is to say, it's from what expresses itself in humans and animals that we must derive the basis for a true recognition of the respective movements of the heavenly bodies. We have to raise the study of astronomy up, out of the domain in which we restrict ourselves to outward visual appearance, even if we are calling on the aid of telescopes, mathematical calculations, and mechanics. It must be raised up into what finds expression in this most sensitive of instruments, the living organism. The formative forces at work within animals and also within humans are a clear indication of the real movements in celestial space. Let's remain within this sphere, which is a kind of qualitative mathematics. How then must we transform the idea when we pass on from the animal to the plant? We can no longer make use of either of the two directions we have just indicated. Admittedly, it might appear as though the vertical orientation of the plant coincided with that of the human spine. From the aspect of Euclidean space, it does, no doubt. Space that's Euclidean, not with respect to detailed configuration, but simply with respect to its fixity. But it won't be the same in an inherently mobile space. I mean a space with dimensions so inwardly mobile that in the relevant equations, for example, we can't really equate the x and the y dimensions as having the same inner scope. Rather, we have to posit the y-axis as the vertical and at the same time as a function of the x-axis, y equals f of x. The equation might be written very differently from this. You'll see what I intend more from the words I use than from the symbols. It's by no means easy to express in mathematical form. In a coordinate system corresponding to what I'm intending here, it would no longer be permissible to measure the ordinates with the same inherent measures as the abscissa. We couldn't keep the measures rigid when passing from the one to the other. We would be led in this way from the rigid coordinate system of Euclidean space to a coordinate system that's inherently mobile. And if we ask the question again, how are the vertical directions of plant growth and of human growth respectively related? Then we're led to differentiate one vertical from another. The question becomes then how to find the way to an idea of space that's different from fixed Euclidean space. For it may well be that the celestial phenomena can be understood only in terms of quite another kind of space, neither Euclidean nor any abstractly conceived space of modern mathematics, but a form of space derived from the reality itself. If this is so, then there's no alternative. It's within such a space, and not within the rigid space of Euclid, that we have to understand celestial phenomena. Thus, we're led into quite other conceptions, namely to the Ice Age, on the one hand, and on the other to a kind of reform of the Euclidean idea of space. But this reform will be in a spirit that's different from the work of Minkowski and others, 
By simply contemplating the given facts and trying to build up a science free of hypotheses, we're confronted by the need for a thoroughgoing revision of the concept of space itself. Tomorrow we'll have more to say about such matters again. The end of Lecture 7